This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 12, The Second Persian Invasion of Greece, Part 2. So let's recap what we know. The Greek city-states, which are collectively called polis, had evolved to become advanced societies with advanced political systems. They had mastered artisanry and trade and colonised most of the Mediterranean. They all spoke a form of Greek language, but they competed with each other, both in sporting competition at the ancient Olympic Games, but also, more importantly, they would compete with each other for wealth and opportunity, even if that meant military exchanges. The lands of Persia were ruled by the Achaemenids, who had built the largest empire ever seen. Some historians say that some of Persia's expansions are not necessarily due to an ambition to build a huge empire, but to my mind, they clearly wanted to dominate the wealthiest areas of the world and so they would successfully conquer Egypt and Anatolia. This would bring them to the banks of the Aegean Sea and in direct contact with the Greek societies. They would install rulers over some of the Asiatic Greek polis and inevitably become involved in the politics between Greek polis. But often the Persian way would be to exploit the wealth and land of those polis that would need their help. There was no reason why the Persians would do something for nothing. However, many of the Poles would be wary of the Achaemenids' imperial ambitions and even though there was a rivalry between Athens and Sparta, the two biggest Greek Poles, they both seemed concerned about Achaemenid expansion. When the Ionian Greeks of Western Anatolia rebelled against the Achaemenid Persians, the Athenians supported the rebels. So when the Ionian Revolt was eventually put down, the Achaemenid Persians decided to take revenge against the Athenians and attack them directly. This led to the Battle of Marathon in 490 BCE on the Attica Peninsula, the home of Athens. Despite being outnumbered, the Athenians managed to get the better of the Persians, thanks to some tactical genius. Athens may have expected support from the Spartans, but the Spartans seemed reluctant to get involved, arriving far too late to make any difference. The Achaemenid Persians were infuriated by their embarrassing defeat. They would go back to Persia and regroup. They would spend the time to prepare properly and gather together the biggest military land and sea force and they would plan to come back to the Greek lands and make everybody pay. The Greeks would have to forget their differences and come together if they didn't want to lose the lands and become subject to the Achaemenids. This would mean cooperation between Athens and Sparta. The two polis 
would need to be on the same page to stand any kind of chance. Last week we told the story of how King Xerxes I of Achaemenid Persia led his land forces to Thermopylae on the Balkan Peninsula, where they would stand opposite the allied Greek hoplite phalanxes under the command of King Leonidas I of Sparta. If the Greeks lost Thermopylae, then the Achaemenid Persians would have cleared the route to Athens. So it was vital that it was not lost. The Spartan-led allies were betrayed, however, and the Achaemenids were able to compromise the Greek phalanxes. An immediate withdrawal of all Greek land and sea forces was commanded, while a core fighting group of Spartans, alongside their King Leonidas I, fought to the death at Thermopylae. This is where we left the story last week. The Advance of the Persians The land and sea forces of the allied Greeks had fled south, and the Achaemenid Persians, led by Xerxes I, were now free to press further south. His brother, Achaemenes, was leading the Persian navy, and he now could also lead the naval fleet southwards after the Greek commander Themistocles had ordered the Greek fleet to retreat south. The Greeks had to pick a new strategical bottleneck like Thermopylae to begin to build their next defensive position. The advantage of the bottleneck is that it would limit the amount of Achaemenid Persian military units that could engage in battle simultaneously, giving the Greeks more chance of overcoming the Achaemenids who vastly outnumbered them. The next obvious position would be the Isthmus of Corinth, which was a narrow strip of land leading to the Peloponnese, the home of the Spartans. The only issue with this position is that it was behind the Attica Peninsula, so taking this position would leave Athens to the mercy of the Achaemenids. So Athens was evacuated as the Greeks understood that in order to stand any chance, they would have to surrender Athens to the enemy. Ten years previous, the Athenians defended Attica at Marathon. The Athenian commander and polymarch Callimachus gave his life for Athens. His legacy would be celebrated by the Athenians by the erection of a Nike statue on the Acropolis of Athens. Ten years after, the Achaemenid Persians would enter Athens, climb onto the Acropolis, destroy the Nike of Callimachus, as well as the Parthenon and the Temple of Athena. Those people remaining in the city were slaughtered. Athens was lost. The Battle of Salamis With the Achaemenid forces led by King Xerxes I now at Athens, it would not be difficult for his brother Achaemenes to lead the fleet around the Attica Peninsula to meet up with his brother at Athens's seaport. 
Now the Achaemenids would likely be aware that the Allied Greeks had retreated to the Isthmus of Corinth because all you needed to do was put yourself in their shoes and ask what you would do in their position. So, if the Greeks were preparing for another tightly bunched battle of infantry and archery, then wouldn't it be a surprise if you were to load much of your infantry onto your naval fleet and bypass the Isthmus of Corinth completely? The Greeks did not know what to do and it would come as no surprise that the Athenians in exile and the Spartans both believed that they knew what was best. The Spartan naval commander was a man called Eurybiades and Eurybiades believed that the Greek fleet should withdraw to the Peloponnese to defend the Spartan heartlands. However, the Athenian commander Themistocles felt Otherwise, he believed that by heading off the Achaemenid fleet before they reached the Peloponnese, that the Allied Greeks would have a better chance of success. At the mouth of the Athenian seaports, there was a large island called Salamis, and between this island and the mainland was a strait of water called the Strait of Salamis. So the Greeks eventually decided to try and engage the Persian fleet there. When Xerxes learned of all the Greek willingness to engage, he leapt at the chance, feeling that he had the Greeks on the back foot and saw an opportunity to strike the killer blow to their navy. It is said that Themistocles sent a messenger to the Achaemenids to give them false information in order to gain a tactical advantage. Whether this is true or not is debatable. It would be quite understandable for the Achaemenids to believe that momentum was in their favour and King Xerxes would even personally settle at a high vantage point to observe this great battle and the glory of Persian dominance over the Greeks. When the Achaemenid fleet approached the seaports of Athens at the Strait of Salamis, the Greek naval fleet retreated into a narrow strait of water. This would entice the Achaemenid naval fleet into the strait and this is exactly what Themistocles was banking on. As soon as the high numbers of Achaemenid warships entered the straits, the Allied Greeks struck back, attacking the Achaemenid boats in a surprise counter-attack. The Achaemenid ships realised that they would need to back up but such was the high numbers of the Achaemenid fleet that a retreat was impossible, and as the Greeks advanced, the Achaemenids simply ended up getting in each other's ways, crashing into each other and accidentally attacking each other in the blind panic. The Greeks would ram the panicking Achaemenid fleet, boarding their boats and slaughtering their men. This was an absolute unforeseen disaster for the Achaemenids. They had been drawn in and trapped and now they couldn't escape from these treacherous narrow waterways. Ultimately, the Allied Greeks would capture and sink hundreds of the Achaemenid ships. Thousands of Achaemenid Persians were slaughtered or drowned in the torrid waters of the Strait of Salamis. Xerxes was absolutely horrified. 
This was now a done deal and a crushing and unexpected defeat for him and his Achaemenid Persians. Xerxes had no option but to demand a retreat, undoing all of the hard work that he and his forces had done to get this far in the first place. Xerxes had had enough of Greece and decided that he wanted to return to Persia with the remnants of his forces. It would be the Achaemenid Persian commander Mardonius who would offer to stay in friendly Balkan territory with a small force to keep an eye on things. Mardonius had been a close ally of Xerxes' own father Darius the Great and had also been trusted to make preparations for Darius' first invasion of Greek lands some 12 years earlier before Datis would take over and provoke the Battle of Marathon. So Mardonius would stay and Xerxes would go and the Allied Greeks had scored an unbelievable victory. If Marathon was great then surely Salamis was even greater. Aftermath Although Themistocles had famously outwitted the Achaemenids against all the odds, he would still have to oversee the return of Athens to the Athenians, who would have to pick up the pieces of their destroyed city. This must have been an extremely poignant time for the Athenians, who had built and evolved their city both physically, spiritually and politically for many generations, and this was the outcome of their proud history. The effect that it would have on the Athenians was profound, as it would be for those many Greek polis who had been similarly affected. The Greek polis had matured very suddenly in the light of what happened at these Greco-Persian exchanges, and now they believed that they were worthy of their place in the world, and that they could consider themselves, at the very least, equal to the mighty Persians. The Athenians would have it in their minds that they would build Athens back up and make it bigger and better than ever. However, as we know, this was not the end. Mardonius remained in Greek territory and although the Athenians had returned to their city and were able to remain there through the winter months, they knew that it would only be a matter of time before the Achaemenid Persians would interfere in their affairs once again. Mardonius was able to retain a high quality army which contained many of the variety of soldiers that the Persians had at the disposal of due to their far-reaching territory. No doubt that the Spartans were reasonably happy with the outcome of the battles. It's true that they suffered losses, not least of all their king, Leonidas, but Sparta had two kings anyway, and all kings were ultimately replaceable. What is more important is that Spartan territory had been spared, and that the Peloponnese had not been invaded. The Athenians were not so happy, knowing that they were almost a sitting duck by comparison. In their minds it was only a matter of time before the Achaemenids would be back and they felt that they needed to take action 
but would be stronger with Spartan support. The Spartans, within the security of the Peloponnese again, really weren't as bothered. Mardonius would see this as an opportunity. Athens and Sparta clearly had very little love for each other and were just standing together to see off a common threat. But if Mardonius could befriend one of the Greek polis and further widen the cracks of the relationship between Athens and Sparta, then there may be an opportunity to exploit the situation to the benefit of the Achaemenids. So, Mardonius would offer the Athenians the influence of more land in order to entice the Athenians to withdraw their hoplites from the allied forces in the Peloponnese. The Athenians trusted the Achaemenids less than they trusted the Spartans. So when the Athenians were presented with this deal, they were open with the Spartans about it. So it came as no big surprise that the Athenians refused to cooperate. Mardonius was not pleased, as you might expect. His response was brutal. The Athenians would have to evacuate Athens yet again, and Mardonius moved in and destroyed the city again. Herodotus describes it as being every bit as brutal as the destruction of the city in the previous year. So even though Xerxes had retreated to Persia and the allied Greeks had won the famous Battle of Salamis, the Athenians were still being bullied around and were not secure in their home city. This is not what the Athenians fought for. To be fearing the Achaemenids to their north and effectively being ignored by the Spartans to their south who were happily secure in the Peloponnese. However, the Spartans couldn't ignore the situation and needing the security of the Athenian forces alongside them had no choice but to aid the Athenian cause and join the counter-offensive. The Allied Greeks would take action in two ways. Firstly, they would carry out a land campaign against Mardonius. Second, and simultaneously, they would dispatch a naval force to travel across the Aegean Sea to the Ionian coast, seek out the Achaemenid fleet and attempt to nullify them before they could return to the Balkan Peninsula and assist their land forces. So despite the fact that we often talk about this Battle of Salamis representing the climax of the Second Persian Invasion of Greece, we find that the actions of 479 BCE were just as important. Four seven nine BCE. Let's not forget one of the aspects of the Achaemenid Persian army which could have, and maybe should have, been a difference maker in a war between the Persians and the Greeks. We're talking about the Persian cavalry. When the Allied Greek army were heading north, Mardonius would manoeuvre his forces into an area where he could deploy his cavalry effectively in open plains. The Greeks recognised this danger and remained watchful from the highlands, observant of the Persians. 
This could have resulted in a stalemate, with the Persians knowing that their close quarters infantry were inferior to the legendary Greek hoplites, with the Persians relying more on their archers and cavalry. The Greeks, on the other hand, could not afford to be drawn into open plains where the Persian archers and cavalry would be able to be effective on the numbers of the allied Greek army. What both sides could not afford is to be sitting and looking at each other indefinitely. In the meantime, an allied Greek fleet of ships was heading across the Aegean Sea towards the island of Samos, which was just off the Anatolian coast, and was where the Persian fleet was stationed. The Persian fleet, which once numbered over a thousand, was now just a few hundred strong after the devastating losses in the previous year at Salamis. On the nearby coastline was an Achaemenid Persian army outpost stationed on the highlands of Mount Mikali, where they would have an excellent vantage point outwards across the Aegean Sea. We do know that when the Achaemenids were aware of the approaching allied Greek fleet loaded up with plenty of hoplite infantry, the Achaemenids chose to withdraw their fleet from Samos to the mainland where it could be protected by the army unit at Mikali. This was now a key time for the unified city-states of Greece. It was one thing what they did at Salamis in the previous year, resisting the Achaemenid invasion and forcing them into retreat. But they had done this ten years earlier, only to send the Achaemenids into a programme of rebuilding to come back harder and stronger. Now there was an opportunity for the Greeks to counterattack and not only resist the Achaemenids, but to now chase them away. It may be a tall order, but when would they ever get this kind of opportunity again, with the strongest polis of Greece acting as a united force? Mardonius's Achaemenid army had enticed the allied Greeks near to the polis of Plataea, home of the polis that offered the most assistance to the Athenians at the Battle of Marathon 11 years previous. The allied Greek forces, led by the Spartan general called Pausanias, allowed the Achaemenid cavalry to approach them, but the Greeks stood firm and fought them off successfully. Mardonius would need to try an alternative method as the Greeks were not prepared to be rushed into a conflict and were only prepared to engage on their terms. Mardonius would attempt to cut off supplies to the Greek army in order to provoke a reaction, but the Greeks stood firm for 11 days, refusing to be drawn into warfare in the open and flat terrain that would suit the Achaemenid archers and cavalry. The Allied Greek resolve started to wear thin, with the Achaemenids starving them out and eventually holding them under siege the Greek battle lines started to fragment and the Achaemenids spotted the opportunity to advance and strike the killer blow. However, at the Battle of Marathon and at the Battle of Salamis, the Allied Greeks had enticed the Achaemenids into attacking them 
only to find that they were falling into a trap. When Mardanius's forces moved in to slaughter the fragmented, besieged, allied Greek army, the Greeks stopped and turned and attacked back. The Achaemenids had been trapped in a close quarters battle with the superior, heavily armoured Greek hoplites. Mardonius and the Persian army were the ones who were slaughtered, being unable to escape. Pausanias had scored yet another famous Greek victory, and Mardonius had finally perished after many years of long service to Xerxes and his father. We cannot be sure if the Greek naval fleet on their journey to Samos were aware of the heroic victory of their comrades back home. But if they were, then it may have buoyed their spirits going into their own inevitable conflict on the Anatolian shores of the Aegean Sea. The campaign was being headed by the Spartan Eurypontic king, Leo Tychidas. If you recall, Sparta was a type of diarchy, meaning that it had two kings, the Eurypontids and the Agiads, both working alongside each other. Leo Tychidas had been in office alongside the Agiad kings Cleomenes I, who helped to overthrow the pitistratid tyranny of Athens, and Leonidas I, who had laid down his life at the Battle of Thermopylae. The Achaemenids were in no mood to engage with Leo Tychidas' fleet, and therefore decided to beach at the mainland under Mount Mikali, where the land-based army was able to defend it. As we are already aware, Leo Tychidas was being accompanied by a good number of hoplites and was happy to pursue the retreating Achaemenid fleet to Mikali. This was Ionian territory and if you recall, this is where the whole episode of the Greco-Persian War started when the Ionians revolted against their Achaemenid overlords and invaded the city of Sardis. Now, however, the Achaemenids had complete control of Ionia and the Ionians were serving under them, including within their diverse army ranks. When the allied Greek hoplites disembarked and engaged with the Achaemenid land forces, it seems by the number of casualties that the losses to both sides were absolutely considerable. This must have been a brutal battle, and although the amount of individuals within the two armies was considerably less than at Plataea, where the Achaemenid commander Mardonius was defeated and killed in that same month, it does seem like Mikali was more evenly matched and that the battle must have gone on and on with more and more losses of life on both sides. Eventually, as was the case at Plataea, the Greek hoplites proved themselves superior in close quarters battle with the Achaemenids. Couple this with the fact that the Ionian faction of the Achaemenid army had decided to turn on them and things were only heading in one direction. Just as they had been at Plataea, the Achaemenid army of Mikali found themselves in an impossible situation. 
Many of the Achaemenids were killed before the Allied Greeks destroyed what remained of the beached Achaemenid fleet. Aftermath, again. When we talk about this episode of Greek history, we talk about Marathon, Thermopylae and Salamis, but we don't tend to talk about Plataea and Mycale, and it always makes historians wonder why. Without Plataea and Mycale, there would have surely been another Marathon and another Salamis, as the Achaemenids would have continued returning to Greece until they had finally crushed them all together and subjugated them in the same way that they had done to the Egyptians, for example. The reality is that as incredible as battles like Marathon and Thermopylae were, and how they were dramatised and immortalised by storytellers in the two and a half thousand years ever since, and how incredible the victories were against the odds, they would have been meaningless had the Allied Greeks not followed things up at Plataea and Mycale in the following year. Even without the two battles of 479 BCE, had the Athenians had chosen to make a deal with Mardonius before Mardonius sacked Athens on the second occasion, then Greek lands may have been lost without any great battle to end the affair, and the Balkan Peninsula would have simply become just another satrap of the Achaemenid Empire. Tensions would continue to exist between the Achaemenids and the Greeks for a number of years to come, but they never escalated to the scale of the conflicts of 480 and 479 BCE ever again. The Greeks would need to step up their game in terms of reminding the Achaemenids that they were not just going to wait for the next attack, so many comparatively minor skirmishes in and around the lands of the Mediterranean Sea would follow. The conflicts were mainly instigated by Athens, who set up an association of Greek polis called the Delian League. The Spartans had no interest in pursuing further war with the Achaemenids, as the Athenians did, and decided to protect their own interests within their own Peloponnesian League. We will follow the stories of the Delian League and the Peloponnese League in the future. Those generals of the Greek polis, Themistocles, Pausanias and Leotychides would surely become folk heroes to be celebrated for the rest of their lives all across Greek lands. Until we remember that is, that this is the disunited land of the Greeks and that we are talking about the world as it was two and a half thousand years ago. Pausanias, the hero of the Battle of Plataea, was never going to be popular among the Athenians due to their distrust of the Spartans, and many rumours of him colluding with King Xerxes I about a Spartan alliance with Achaemenid Persia surfaced, followed by accusations of being a helot sympathiser, which would put him at odds with many Spartan elites. The Spartan ephors, who were the magistrates, pursued Pausanias, firstly attempting to starve him out of a temple that he was seeking refuge in, before he would emerge from the temple and die. Leotychides, the hero of the Battle of Mycale, returned to Sparta, but before long was accused of bribery 
in a completely different episode. So he was exiled from Sparta and died around 10 years after Mikali. Themistocles, the Athenian hero of the Battle of Thermopylae, and Salamis would return to Athenian politics until he fell out of favour and went into exile in the Peloponnese. King Xerxes I of Persia went on to rule for a number of years after the second Persian invasion of Greece. After his early years were full of dealing with rebellions and overseeing military campaigns, Xerxes would settle into more domestic issues such as construction projects and maintenance of the much-admired Persian royal roads, originally commissioned by his father. His grisly end came in 465 BCE when his own chief official, Artabanus, assassinated him, which resulted in him being succeeded by his son, Artaxerxes I. Xerxes' brother, the commander of the Achaemenid naval fleet, Achaemenes, survived him and continued as the Persian satrap of Egypt until the Delian League supported a local Egyptian revolt against Achaemenes, in which Achaemenes was killed and his body was sent to the new Persian king, Artaxerxes. As for Themistocles, the Athenian hero, we mentioned that he went into exile in the Peloponnese, but there was really no way that the Spartans would allow such an influential Athenian to live out his years comfortably so close by, and so he was forced to flee again. But this time, it was to Anatolia, and from what we can understand, in his final years, he was allowed to govern the Ionian city of Magnesia, and this permission was given by the Achaemenid Persian king Artaxerxes I. So the man who so famously defeated the Persians in Greece ended up serving them in Anatolia. Next time, we will find out exactly what the future held for the two rival poles of Greece, those being Athens and Sparta, and how tensions would emerge, grow and reach a climax between them. Thanks very much for listening to this week's podcast episode uh, concluding the second Persian invasion of Greece. A fascinating story. This 5th century BCE is fascinating and it just doesn't stop, to be quite honest with you. The entire century is full of action as we're going to discover over the course of the next two episodes so be sure to stay tuned it just comes thick and fast the action here in ancient Greece as ever I'd always love to hear from you Um, there's the history of the world podcast uh, discussion forum which I'd love you to take part in come along and join in if you go to the interact section of the history of the world podcast.com website you can actually join the forum and discuss some of the contents of the episode and i'll be really interested to hear from you if you have an opinion as to which was the most important event of the persian invasions of greece which was the pivotal moment that you felt was the difference maker in that whole episode of events Let me know. Come and let me know. I'd be uh, really, really grateful to hear from you. 
Now, if you love the podcast and want to support it, then of course you can. Once again, at the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, there's a link for um, supporting the podcast. It's the Patreon link, and you can sign up and make a monthly donation to the podcast for as little as $1 a month. And there are rewards available to those who make sustained contributions to the podcast uh, over any amount of time. And if you do make donations to the podcast, you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And we have new members to welcome in this week. We have Mr. Elk. Let's quickly catch up with some of your messages. So we had a message from Tim Clark, who is from Forestfield. Where's that? Where's Forestfield? That uh, must be in Australia, I'm guessing, by the email address. Um, he's put, hi, just started listening to Volume 1, Episode 11. This podcast was just what I was trying to find, so thank you for making it. Peace out. Thank you very much, Tim. Jessica Erickson from Alberta, Canada got in touch with the podcast, but hi Chris, I've just come across your podcast and I'm addicted to it. Currently, I'm at Volume 1, Episode 11. That seems to be a popular one, doesn't it? I actually love about 30 minutes, or that should read, I actually live about 30 minutes, I think that should read. I actually live about 30 minutes from the giant boulder, starring in Episode 8. That will be the Okotok. Uh, the Okotoks erratic, won't it, that one. I've always had a keen interest in both anthropology and archaeology as well as history. It feels like your podcast was made just for me. Yeah, it sounds like destiny, doesn't it, Jessica? I appreciate your simple and direct format and how thorough your research has been. I also like how you handle grey areas, stating your opinion based on what you've researched. Ultimately, encouraging people to figure out their own opinion. I'm probably going to need to listen through Volume 1 all over again before continuing on to Volume 2. I'm loving everything I'm remembering from my uni degree, which I completed a long time ago. Thank you for your time and fantastic effort. Uh, Dave Steger also wrote in from Kalamazoo in Michigan. But hi, Chris. Wanted to let you know that I'm very much enjoying your podcast and am learning a lot. Ever since I discovered it on Spotify last month, I've been listening to an episode or two most every day. I am a retired history teacher and think you do an outstanding job of researching and presenting information in an interesting and accessible manner. Thanks again for your good work. Thanks a lot for the message, Dave. The last one I'm going to read out is from Spencer in Hertfordshire, which is just round the corner from me. Uh, he's put, um, uh, Hi, I just wanted to let you know that I stumbled across your podcast by chance and have listened to five in three days. I'm usually very heavily into music, so that's quite an achievement. I really want to learn all about the history of everything, as there are many gaps in my knowledge from school some 25 years ago. Now I have a daughter going to school and it's given me fresh eyes for learning. You have inspired me about things I hadn't given much thought to, like archaeology and paleontology, and I think I'll now be able to inspire her too through this newfound knowledge and enthusiasm. I was originally looking for more of a history of 
20th century politics and the rise and fall of the British Empire and perhaps revisiting the world wars. I also have an interest in learning more about the Romans and Greek philosophy, but I decided to start from episode one. This is just a message to say, please keep it coming and thanks. Well, you're all really, really kind sending me those lovely messages and I I'd like to thank you all and by all means if you want to send me a message please do either use the contact link through the website or the email address is historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Let's just quickly read out some reviews before uh, signing off for another week. Uh, Apple Podcasts um, reviews this time. It's uh, with the first one's from the History of Finland podcast um, from... You guessed it, Finland. As put, Chris's outstanding history podcaster. I've listened to the podcast from the very first day and I love it. There are two podcasts that I binge as soon as the episodes come available. The other is Sam Harris's Making Sense. I've not heard of that one. So I think that speaks for itself. Everyone should get some Chris in their lives. Oh, thank you very much. We will have to check out your podcast there, the History of Finland podcast. That's a that's one I've not stumbled across. Um, we have uh, from Kyle Woe from the United States of America, but well worth a listen. Started at the beginning of Volume Two, still working through it. We'll certainly go back to Volume One and listen throughout. Um, next one is from Annoyed in Canada from Canada. As put simple and thorough, if you've come across this podcast and are wondering if it's right for you, you should probably just listen to it. I've come, I've, I've just come across this podcast and have found it to be very good. I've completed the Bachelor's in History with a minor in Biological Anthropology. It feels as though this podcast was custom created for me. Ooh, that's two people that have said that. Um, Chris... Chris's delivery is simple and clear, yet very thorough, especially given the large task of discussing a complete history of human areas covered include development as seen in the anthropological record in areas of the social, cultural, material and biological, etc. of early humans, ancestors and ancestral cousins. Do you know what? Just as I'm reading that, I think I've just figured it out. It's not two people that have sent that message it's the same person isn't it they've uh, they've sent me the email and then written a review so great great amount of thanks for that uh, and then last one finally uh from sal paradise 81 uh, from the united states of america has put love the podcast one point not sure if it's just me but there is a deep hum in the background Oh, we might have to investigate that. If anyone has got any expertise in uh, in sound, especially in using audacity to relieve the deep hum that is in the background of this podcast, then I'd love to hear from you. Um, I think I am aware of it, but then also I'm, I'm all too painfully aware of my uh, my lack of professional uh, setup here. So. Uh, yeah, there may well be that deep hum. But if anyone can help me uh, with that, I'd be very grateful. Anyway, that's enough for another week. Next week, it's going to be another big week. I, th- I think I keep saying that every week, don't I? Um, we're going to be entering into the Peloponnesian War. But we do really need to set it up. There is a lot that goes on before uh, the 
the main Peloponnesian War, there's sort of two Peloponnesian Wars, and it's often the second Peloponnesian War that's referred to as the Peloponnesian War. So we're going to set up um, the whole theatre of the war, and so we're going to be continuing on from what has happened in this week's episode. But if you're interested in that, and uh, why wouldn't you be, then do make sure that you're around in seven days' time for the next episode. Until then, thanks for listening and cheerio. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.